Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. I am super excited to welcome back the brilliant Dr. Daniel Lamina to continue our discussion as we learn more about unconscious biases and how it can manifest in us in our adolescent and adult years. Over to the doctor. So, Dr. Amina, can you set the scene for us? What's going on in the adolescent brain? Um, have we gotten over leaving the womb yet? And as someone who literally looks at brain scans uh, all the time, uh, what can you tell us about it? So, uh, during adolescence, super, super exciting time. A lot of stuff happening in the brain. And we're going to still use some of the Erickson stages here. A- again, I'll reference back to the identity versus role confusion as kind of a framework to understand this. And then I will discuss a little bit more about the neurobiology, what's actually occurring. So again, part of your goal of this stage is to figure out who you're going to be. And then not only figure out who you're going to be, but can I do this outside of the protective realm of my parents? Can I be an independent being? So much of the development that occurs is really pushing you out of home. Much of your, your emotional responses and, and your risk-taking is really trying to push you outside of home. It's like learning to fly a plane that's already in the air and is still working on on the wings. The brain is a moving target during this time period. And there is inconsistency that you will often see in behavior during this time period. Sometimes very happy, sometimes very down, sometimes very moody, sometimes very communicative, sometimes very, very not. Overall, what we know is that adolescence is a development period characterized by suboptimal decisions. You can make good ones, but often there's suboptimal decisions and actions. There's an increased risk of unintentional injuries, there's violence, there's substance, there's unintended pregnancies, there's STDs. What we've seen in imaging studies is that the development of the brain, basically, especially the limbic brain, the emotional brain, actually outpaces the development of the prefrontal cortex. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. Your prefrontal cortex, remember, is decision-making impulse control. It's thinking things through, all the details of it, planning things out. Um, it still works during this stage. It's just that the influence and the activation levels of your limbic brain can sometimes be so much greater that it can overwhelm the prefrontal cortex. And remember, the limbic brain helps you process incentive, helps you process reward, and other general forms of uh, emotional processing. So during the stages of heightened responsiveness to incentives and, and, and especially in social uh, emotional contexts. So in relationships, in friendships, in family structure changes. And now because of social media, the online life can be a, a, a trigger for these, these heightened responses. And the challenge is this is during a time when your impulse control is still relatively immature. Your prefrontal cortex hasn't finished developing, Right. Specifically, there's a part of the brain here that's actually even way more active. It's called the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is deep in the, the brain, deep in the basal ganglia in particular, which processes reward. That's its job. It's more active in adolescence and, than it is in actually a child or an adult. So the, the combination of this heightened activity and heightened responsiveness to rewards 
and the immaturity in behavioral control areas may actually bias adolescents to seek immediate gains rather than long-term gains. So this is one of the reasons we see a lot more uh, risky decision-making, a lot more emotional reactivity. And I guess also, you know, partly why, um, you know, they're the ones who become the early adopters on, you know, new mobile games, video games, uh, you know, all of these experiences that are really designed for that, you know, those ideas catch fire with them because they're all built around that dopamine reward system, right? So they're just triggering that en masse. Yeah, novelty-seeking behavior. It's, it's the reason to leave your, uh, your village, right? Your brain rewards you for this. Uh, one of the, the biggest goals of, as I mentioned in adolescence, is acquisition of independent skills. When, when uh, during my age, it was getting, you know, a sign of greater level of independence was getting your driver's license. That was the thing. Like your brain knew, okay, I can go, right? Now it's actually getting a mobile phone. It's getting you access to your friends at any time you need to. It's having a social network. It's having a social identity. And that's actually, so I have, I have a lot of my client kids now that don't care about their driver's license anymore. What they care about is that phone. So there are definitely many, many factors that uh, trigger this, this push towards a greater level of independence. And, and it's built into us genetically. And how quickly is the brain developing at this point? Still extremely quickly, probably not as quickly as in really in the first few years of life. I mean, by uh, age two and three, you've already hit 86, anywhere between 86 to 100 billion neurons already. Really what's happening in this stage of development is ongoing pruning. So you have all those neurons, they're actually overconnected as a little kid, as a little child, and you, you start to prune down unnecessary connections. The benefit of this is that you improve and refine connections. And this, this is one of the things that actually develops between adolescence and adulthood is that your connection with your prefrontal cortex down to your limbic or emotional brain improves. So you have greater capabilities of regulating that limbic or emotional brain as long as you don't damage your brain with substances or head injuries or toxins or such. So just how justified are these mood swings that parents have to suffer? I mean, obviously, I didn't do any as an angel, but, you know, and, and I'm sure you didn't either. But, you know, other, other kids, I've heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is it justified behavior? In, in some ways, right? Um, because it's a combination of these heightened responsiveness towards rewards and immaturity. It's helping you seek these immediate gains rather than long-term gains. And this is probably a feature, Right. One needs to be willing to engage in higher risk behavior to leave the comfortable family and village. The brain rewards that, that novelty seeking. The other element too is that increased emotional reactivity. Maybe it's part of vigilance and being aware of threat. Your, your, your ability to be able to protect yourself goes up when you're more vigilant. There, there's also a last component that I often see, one of this, it, it speeds the individuation process. It speeds the, the willingness to say, mom, dad, I'm different from you. When you have that little bit of extra irritability, let me push off from you. Let me be irritated when you encroach on me. It nurtures that, almost lights that fire to say, it is time for me to leave. What are some of the more interesting cases that you could share that, you know, you've talked about what's going on inside the teenager's brain with regards to um, racial bias or prejudice? I'll actually use myself as an example here. I'll give you kind of um, 
And I'll actually go back into childhood a little bit and I'll talk about how this showed up for me in adolescence. So I mentioned I immigrated to the U.S. I actually went to predominantly white schools early on. And this is part of my upbringing. I, I kind of already considered myself as this conscientious, academically focused, goal oriented. So even as a little kid, I was already like thinking about what I want to do. You know, as an immigrant, you're usually thinking doctor, lawyer, engineer. So I was already like, I was picking one of those. I was probably going to be a doctor. Well, here I am. Goal-oriented, faithful kid. That's that's who I kind of had in my mind of myself. But I, I found out early that when I got here uh, into the, to the States, that just because I had that view of myself doesn't necessarily mean that my classmates or my teachers even had that view of me. So I found out early if there was a conflict between myself and another white child, it would be my fault. I'll be the one who end up in the principal's office. I attempted to manage this initially by actually trying to re- report to the teacher. Hey, teacher, he's, he's saying some things or doing some things. But that was unfortunately turned around as you're tattletaling. So I learned early that my viewpoint did not matter as much as the other, right? The in-group. And if there was going to be an issue or problem, it would be more likely to be my concern or my fault. Now, this is challenging because this is during that stage of industry versus inferiority. What am I good at? Oh, am I inferior to those around me? I did have that strong identity of like, hey, I'm still going to perform academically. I'm, I was actually athletic too, so I was going to perform that way. But there's actually even data on this, this preschool data. I'll give you a, a sense of what happens. African-American boys will make up 19% of a preschool male population, but 45% of preschool males that are suspended, so they have a disciplinary action against them. For girls, it's 20% of the female population, but 54% of preschool girls that are suspended. And then in general, they were up to, three to 3.6 times more likely to be suspended than the white peers. So already in my mind, I was getting the sense that I was the other. And I took that with me. And I took that with me into my adolescence where I'm now working on my identity. Now, again, remember, I had this strong upbringing that told me I was conscientious. I was academically focused. I was goal-oriented. I was faithful. That, that was me. So luckily, I had that very strong upbringing that supported that. But I, I had to learn that to manage conflict with intellect very early. Same thing, because if I did not manage it with intellect, who would be in trouble? Me. So I learned different strategies on this, you know, how, how I used words, ignoring. There had to be a sophistication in managing this. You could be very rarely go to any way that was threatening. Because if it was threatening, I would be labeled as angry. And I actually did have a conversation, like I remember this, a teacher brought my mom in, and that, why does he look angry? And, and I learned early you cannot be the, a black and angry. You're more likely to, to get in trouble for that. And this was a teacher I liked and respected. So I don't think it was, he meant it as a, as a problem, but it became very, very clear early on that I could not manage my interactions even by showing a, a greater level of displeasure. So I learned to actually use humor early on. Now, my learning probably helped me do the work I do today, but not everybody has those same skill sets. Not everybody has been given other models of who and they can be and is separate from what their society or their peers are telling them that they should be. Even having a secure identity by that stage, there is still this tendency to want to try on different roles. So I, I was, you know, I was playing sports, I was on the basketball team, hung out with a lot of different kids temporarily hung out with some kids that tended to get in a little bit more trouble. They weren't bad kids, they were all great kids. 
They're all doing fine now. And, and, I, and I ended up ditching a, uh, like a class. Uh, my mom found out. She, she was obviously frustrated as, as a mom. And my explanation to her was basically it was an experiment, mom. It's an interesting thing that kids will do. And it, it, it's an exciting time for doing that. But the, the foundation of a firm identity got me through it. Now, there are a lot that unfortunately do not have that foundation of a firm identity. Yeah, I mean, teenagers usually do the opposite of what their parents ask, right? So um, I guess very helpful for any parents with teenagers now. Uh, how do parents encourage nudges in the right direction to see if there are any any of the concerning patterns with regards to cognitive biases that are being demonstrated as well? This is a big one. And it really comes down to being open and honest about it. Um, have that uncomfortable conversation. Have that uncomfortable conversation. But make sure you're educating yourself first. So already going to read up about it, watch different things on it, model your willingness to learn. Still, one of the biggest ways to communicate to a, a child is, is often what you do versus what you say. So model it. Do you have friends that are, uh, that are of an opposite race? How do you interact with them? Do you show them respect when you're at a restaurant uh, outside in some ways or do you not? If your child starts to voice or show things or your adolescent starts to voice or show things that do not match your belief system, gently discuss it with them. But don't try to tell them what to do initially. It's usually, hey, help me understand what, what that was about. Any other way of looking at that? How do you feel that attitude or, or way of thinking actually impacts you? Could it have an impact on others? Then at, at that point, then ask if it's okay and actually ask if it's okay to share your own experience. Again, being that you're a parent, they, they don't want you over encroaching. They prefer a lot more listening than you over speaking to them. That, that last piece is actually key. And then using sharing your own experience and your own growth and your own learning. Again, this is the modeling piece can in many ways be what actually triggers ongoing change for them. One big thing I like to suggest for my parents, don't look at these points of, of challenge or points of needing correction as a problem, actually see, look at them as opportunities. Because in, even in these engagements, you teach them something. How to, how to problem solve in a relationship, how to show love when you disagree, how to share perspectives, how to nurture a relationship. So it's all important. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Heights started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So, for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week. Thank you.